joined today by Zig Leighton Henry, Professor of Politics at uh, Warwick's School of Politics and International Studies. Um, Zig, the media portrayal of the life of an immigrant is often one at conflict with local communities, um, often being portrayed as getting an easy ride at the at the cost of people who've been resident there for years. Is, is this the reality of life for an immigrant in the UK? Well, life for an immigrant in the UK depends very much on what kind of immigrant they are. And we can distinguish between those immigrants who come, for example, through the work permit system to work in the UK and, for example, asylum seekers. The government itself has made a very strong distinction between legal immigrants who are young, highly skilled and come through the work permit system or the young holidaymakers system to work here and those people who are not legally entitled to come, for example, illegal immigrants or asylum seekers. Now, of course, asylum seekers can legally come if they're covered by the UN Convention on Refugees. But relatively few asylum seekers are. To be a bona fide refugee covered by the UN Convention, you have to be fleeing from persecution by the government in your home country. And, of course, lots of refugees come for other perfectly genuine reasons. For example, to escape from war or poverty or other difficulties in their home countries. And we can see a problem facing the government. There are those immigrants they'd very much like to encourage and others who they're less certain about. So would you do you think the distinction then between asylum seekers, refugees and immigrants is properly represented in the British media? Yes, there's lots of con- confusion around these groups. Uh, The tabloid press, for example, tend to focus very much on what they call as bogus asylum seekers, although many of these people will have genuine reasons for coming to the UK. And they'll tend to portray them as coming to benefit from the welfare state, to get free housing, um, free welfare benefits, free health uh, services, etc. But if you're an asylum seeker, you tend to be... relatively poor, the benefits you can contain are relatively small, you're subject to all sorts of harsh conditions such as not being able to work, for example, which makes it, you know, very difficult for an asylum seeker. So they feel badly treated and the local community where they have been temporarily settled feel badly treated as well and feel that they're getting free entitlements for which, which should go to British people who fought in the war, have contributed to the economy, have lived in particular areas all their lives. What is the UK's responsibility in terms of immigration towards the international community? Well, the the UK firstly has, I suppose, a responsibility uh, to itself. Um, Immigration is managed by uh, nation-states pretty well, and of course states want to attract Uh, immigrants with scarce skills, for example, or to fill gaps in the labour market. And we've seen in the UK in the last 10 years uh, quite a significant amount of immigration. Britain historically has been a major emigration country, but since 1983 we have become an immigration country. And this is because we've had a very strong economy. So there has been a shortage both of people with high skills and gaps in the labour market for people with low skills, such as working in catering Mm. or hospitals or construction. 
and certainly in the last two years since the accession of the East European states we've had a very substantial migration from Eastern Europe and many employers and many of the national press have been very pleased with this immigration because East Europeans are regarded as hard-working, uh, willing to accept relatively low wages and, you know, really good workers. So, so in terms of percentages, we, we, we sort of identified those three groups as sort of asylum seekers, refugees and immigrants um, coming here for work. What's the sort of balance between those, those different groups? Well, the balance is very much uh, in favour of people coming really through the work permit system. I mean, a large proportion, actually, of immigrants are, in fact, students. So I, I think half uh, the legal immigrants into the UK are students. An immigrant is a person who intends to stay in the country for more than one year. Students tend to be here for three or four years, and so they count as immigrants, even though they're probably going to return. Although very, very often the government does allow students who've been trained in this country to carry on and work here if they want to stay uh, for a further period. So students form a large proportion. Another large proportion are people who come through the work permit system. Asylum seekers, Britain historically has been a country where relatively few asylum seekers have applied. In the 1980s, we roughly had applications from about 5,000 a year. Since the end of the 1980s, the numbers of asylum seekers has risen substantially, and it reached a peak in 2002 with something like 130,000 people applying for asylum. Since then, it's declined substantially, and last year was around... 30,500, so a very substantial decline. Now, we do have international obligations to asylum seekers. If a person claims asylum, then the government has a responsibility to investigate their claim. The problem is that the UN definition of a bona fide refugee is a person fleeing from persecution by their government. And as I mentioned before, people are often fleeing for other reasons, to improve their standard of living, to escape from war, to escape from drought or famine. So there's a whole series of reasons why people might wish to claim asylum, though not be covered by the UN Convention. And the government then has to decide what to do. And very often people have their claims rejected, but are allowed to stay because, for example, it may be too dangerous to send them back to a country riven by war, such as mm. Somalia, for example, Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, the government certainly has come under a lot of criticism over its handling of, of, those, of those, um, those numbers of asylum seekers. Uh, and you indicated there that there'd been a mass, there has been a large drop in the number of, uh, number of cases. Do you think the government's policy has essentially got it right, or do you think there are still issues that need to be resolved? Well, the government is sensitive to anything to do with immigration because uh, the media, for example, tend to be very strong on issues concerned with foreigners mm -hmm. and immigrants and asylum seekers. Uh, so the government feels electorally vulnerable whenever an issue arises to do with Im immigration or with foreigners. And we saw this, actually, in the last local elections because it's quite clear that the Home Office's failure to deport foreign criminals who'd been in British jails and then be released was a bit of a, 
a major scandal in the press, and this probably helped the BNP to do quite well in certain areas. There's been some discussion about introducing a points scheme uh, within the UK, similar to the Australian model. What sort of differences does that bring to the sort of how we think about immigration? Well, yes, the government is always trying to make immigration less politically sensitive. And one of the criticisms that immigration policy often comes up against is that it's racist, so that we discriminate in favour of European countries, for example, or Australia and North America, and we discriminate against people from Africa and Asia. So if you introduce a point system, this seems to be much more fair and less discriminatory. So you can award people points for uh, the number of skills that they've got, for example. You can award them points for their connection with the UK, mm. um, if they're descended from British grandparents, for example. So points, you can award age-related points, so perhaps giving more points to young people starting out on their careers, less points to retired people mm. who may be more of a potential drain on the welfare state. So a point system, such as operated by Canada and Australia, is quite attractive to the government. And the government can sell it to the electorate as being part of their policy of managed migration. The government likes to convince the electorate that migration is under control, that they're managing it in the national interest. And this makes it less politically sensitive and therefore less likely uh, to help opposition parties, for example. Mm. How are the EU attempting to kind of deal with the, the issues around legal immigration? It's much easier to see the European Union developing common policies on, for example, uh, asylum seekers and refugees than it is on legal immigration because legal immigration is very much tied to the state of national economies. If the economy is strong then this encourages immigration. And we saw in the controversy over the Sangat camp near Calais, lots of people trying to get to the UK and leaving France. Why should people want to leave a wonderful country like France to come to the UK? Well, the reason was unemployment was very high in France and the economy in the UK was very strong. The attractions, particularly of the London labour market, are very strong. And so people were trying to get into the UK. And of course, in the European Union, some economies may be much stronger than others at the same time. So a common immigration policy might be quite difficult. But you can have a common policy on asylum seekers and refugees. And there has been a lot of cooperation in Europe. For example, the European Union has agreed that asylum seekers must apply uh, to settle in the first country, the first safe country that they arrive in. And this has meant, for example, that ref asylum seekers coming from France to Britain can be legally sent back to France because they should apply for asylum in the first EU country they arrive in. Mm. So that would be France. I mean, are these patterns new then? Because, I mean, you, you talk about the kind of flow of migration towards economies that are doing well. And I, my, sort of, my mind goes back to um, the situation in parts of Europe, particularly around agrarian uh, communities, where people would follow the harvest because that that's just what they did because that was where it was economically useful for them to be um, or people migrate from the countryside to cities because that's where the economic powerhouses were uh, Well they're not new, they are 
age-old ways of human behaviour. If you think back to the 19th century, then thousands of Irish people, for example, used to come to work in England uh, during harvest time. Uh, and then when the railways were being built, you know, thousands and thousands of Irish came to help to build the railways. And of course, this was happening at the same time when there was a huge emigration from both Britain and Ireland to the United States, um, to Canada and to Australia. So migration has always been with us. If, if it's always been with us, then um, why is it something we're so worried about? Actually, shouldn't we be looking at immigration as a great opportunity? Yes, migration is a complicated issue and certainly in the last 10 years when the British economy has been very strong, employers' organisations, The Economist, The Times, The Independent have pressed the government for a liberal migration policy. Mm -hmm. And of course the government can have a liberal migration policy within the European Union. It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to attract people from elsewhere, although it may be that there are lots of good computer specialists that we wish to recruit from India, for example, which seems to have a surplus. And so, yes, and the Times has written articles uh, in the past about the failure of the strawberry crop to be picked, for example, because there isn't enough cheap labour. And if local people won't do the work, then employers, if they can, will recruit other people, you know, pay them cheaply and then we can have the benefits of strawberries and raspberries and uh, asparagus. Mm. Um, so That's... migration has always been a valuable source of, of cheap labour mm. and, and of skills too. I suppose the distinction, though, with previous patterns of migration related to, like, related to um, economic growth is that, um, particularly around agrarian societies, is that migrant populations tended to move on uh, once their work had been completed. Is that a pattern that we recognise today? Well, migration tends to be associated with settlement. People often do come on a temporary basis and return, but usually not everybody returns. Uh, And, of course, people may come several times and then gradually put down roots without realising it, or perhaps they don't earn as much as they'd like, uh, and it takes them longer to build up uh, enough money to go back and buy a house in their home country. They may marry, they may have children... And so people, migrants, do tend to put down roots and the migration so tends to lead to settlement. Mm. I think now one of the things is that people feel, well, that Britain is a relatively uh, overcrowded country and, you know, how much immigration can we, can we take? But, of course, this is not an issue that's easily resolved because if you want a strong economy, then you need the people to work the economy. Mm. Uh, If employers are short of labour, they'll want labour, and these things aren't associated with the amount of land a particular country has. It's related to investment and job opportunities and Mm. skills. Are migrant communities sort of remaining distinct from local communities, or are they able to um, sort of bed down and settle in the way that you've described? Well, we have to look at an issue like integration over the long term, uh, not the last couple of years. So if we look at migration to the UK before the Second World War, this was overwhelmingly a European migration. Mm. Uh, Some groups of migrants uh, were not easily accepted. So the Jewish immigrants who came at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, people were worried about them. Um, They were concerned about how they'd integrate But in fact, they integrated extremely well. And there was a royal commission 
to look at the immigration and the integration effects and they found that children adapted well to British schools particularly when they learnt the language um, and that they were integrating uh, fine, that there were relatively few paupers or criminals among them uh, and this has been the case in other countries as well, France historically has recruited immigrants from neighbouring Catholic countries, so Italy, Spain Portugal, Belgium and further afield, Poland and these immigrants tended to assimilate into the French society very well. The challenge with post-war migration has been that the immigrants have come from a much more diverse source. And so the big issue is, can non-European immigrants integrate into European societies as well as European immigrants? Um, and this, to some extent, is still an issue. So, for example, uh, Caribbeans who came after the Second World War people were less sure how well they would integrate, even though they spoke English, were largely Anglican, played cricket, you know, were culturally British. And then people were concerned about immigration from Asia, particularly India and Pakistan. How well would these people integrate? And the answer is that they integrate well in some respects and perhaps less well in others. So it's quite clear from recent studies that Indians, for example, particularly Sikhs and Hindus, do very well in the education system, uh, are upwardly mobile, um, are doing quite well. Uh, Ugandan Asians, I suppose, are seen as a great success story, that they came with relatively little resources, but have quickly adapted themselves to British society and been very successful economically. We do have problems, though, and so, for example, it's quite clear that in many of the northern towns which recruited Pakistani and Bangladeshi populations to work in the textile industry, um, that these people have been subject to a substantial degree of residential segregation, and that very often you have high unemployment among the local white community as well as the local Asian community, and these communities are rather resentful of how the other is doing. So the mm. whites feel that the Asians are doing better than they are uh, and are not sure why, because the economy up there is is in a poor state. And so you get resentments, and this may be exacerbated by involvement in criminal activity, and this can lead to difficulties, mm. as we saw uh, with the riots. So how, I mean, how do we approach, though, that kind of inequality or those those divisions... Um, is there a, a sort of a model for integration um, that we can sort of take and apply to other situations, or is it is, is it kind of an impossible quandary? Uh, it's difficult to think of a good model for integration. I think clearly in difficult situations you need resources, and so the government needs to put resources in to improve local housing, improve the schools... Uh, perhaps encourage integration, uh, draw catchment areas around schools, for example, uh, that allow a mix. It's much better for people to get to know each other and to mix with each other than it is for them to be uh, residentially segregated and educationally segregated. Uh, that doesn't have good long-term effects at all. But at the end of the day, is it an economic driver in terms of the sense of prosperity encourages um, inter cultural integration? whereas um, poor economic performance tends to create division? 
prosperity, I think, increases people's confidence and makes them less resentful and less envious of other people. Mm -hmm. So full employment is clearly a good policy to encourage integration. Um, um, but, but I guess, and uh, I guess, the sort of impact of immigration on somewhere like Norfolk or sort of rural Herefordshire um, is going to be that much more noticeable and greater than necessarily a sort of increase in immigration in London or Newcastle or Birmingham, and the impact on the kind of com- local communities is going to be that much greater, isn't it? Uh, yes, immigrants will be much more visible in country areas than in urban areas. Historically, the ports were always the first places that immigrants settled Mm. and London of course is both a capital and a port and a huge labour market so London has always been uh, a great uh, magnet for for immigrants Mm. and then gradually people move around the country. I suppose the the question in terms of relating this to the EU is that um, I suppose within the EU we're supposed to have freedom of movement so, I mean, I, if I wanted to, I could just pick up and go and work in Belgium if I had any particular reason to go to Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, do we see, I mean, how have the migrant patterns in terms of the UK exporting labour, exporting people, changed? Have they, have, have, has the number of people leaving the UK increased? Um, yes, emigration from the UK does seem to be going up. And two-fifths of this emigration is to other EU countries. So this is partly for work. And so we have seen British people go particularly to Belgium, the Netherlands and Germany to find work. And then retired people, of course, buying houses in France and Spain and Tuscany. Uh, So in a way, we have benefited considerably from... Uh, free movement within the European Union Mm. and people now of course are looking at houses in Bulgaria for example, one of my students acts as an estate agent in Bulgaria selling houses uh, to British um, purchasers Um, so yes, in spite of uh, perhaps a lack of fluency in European languages, we we should we need to invest much more uh, in learning other European languages, uh, the Brits haven't been inhibited about going to other EU countries either to settle or to find work. Mm. Zig, thank you very much. Pleasure.